Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have an amazing founder. We're going to be talking a lot about building, scaling, financing. Uh, but uh, but really interesting stuff, you know, how to go about strategy versus execution, going from a bigger type of company to a startup uh, and, uh, and many other good stuff, you know, that, uh, that I find that you're all going to very much enjoy because it's going to apply to many of the journeys that you're all embarking in. But uh, again, super inspiring, the conversation that we have ahead of us. So be be prepared. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Brian Madel. Welcome to the Dealmaker Show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So originally born in Copenhagen, but uh, raised in Denmark. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life in, in Denmark and 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 all? Denmark is a very safe and settled place. So it was wonderful. Had a good childhood. I had good supportive parents. No, nothing nothing interesting or dramatic about my uh, my upbringing. I think um, I think it was a a great a great influence. It gives you a lot of psychological safety for stuff like creating startups. Uh, I think there's a dearth of uh, of the kind of mindset of aggressive scaling and 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 the way business is built in something like Silicon Valley, but uh, but I think um, I've I've slowly learned more and more people like gotten to know more and more people who come from contexts like that, which I think has has uh, made my my thinking develop and grow over time. What do you mean with psychological safety? I think when when you know that you're going to be all right, I think it it gives you a higher affinity for risk. So I've never been particularly concerned about losing my job or taking risks. I I have a fairly high risk profile, but after leaving Denmark and seeing how you know other places in the world works i realized what a complete privilege it is to to actually grow up a place where you feel like not only your parents but the society has your back if you fall um so i think that uh that, that is giving me an appreciation for not everyone coming from that background and and you know it's it's not particularly brave for me to do something like this but it certainly is brave for someone who comes from a place that has you know no parents no uh no, no safety net in, in the environment that they're in. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it's an important then, factor. At what point do you get involved, you know, or develop that interest towards perhaps mathematics and engineering and problem solving? That's, I, I Ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be an inventor. And then later on, I found out that that means uh, that's called a, an engineer in, in real life. Uh, I had uncles and family that were engineers. I think it's kind of in the blood. Um, so I went, uh, originally I wanted to be an animator, um, and many other things. Eventually I figured out that I really like writing code and like computers. Once I got my first one at around age 12, and then it was kind of a straight shot through engineering school and then into building tech companies since, since that. And it sounds like gaming has been pivotal for you too. How do, how did gaming come knocking? Well, I think as anyone who had a computer early on, games was one of the amazing things you could do back then. It wasn't super common to have a computer or for games to be as common as they are now. But uh, I, I think I kind of feel vindicated that being a, a comic book nerd who likes RPGs and computer games, which was really strange when I was a, a kid, not, now that's like mainstream culture. So um, it, it, it grew out of that. Playing games was super interesting. Building them was even more interesting. 
And and right after graduation, I mean, you you did the whole spiel of uh, doing a little more on the corporate side and and being in bigger corporations. How was that journey from being in bigger corporations? How do you think that shaped you? And at what point did that open up? You know, the possibility of perhaps you know doing or going at it on your own. Well, I think it builds your network. It builds some expertise. I, I've actually regret I've never really built been in really big companies i would have loved to have been at a you know like a really competent big startup and i kind of learned the patterns there um i realized recently that the business that i'm working in now was briefly the biggest business i've ever uh, worked in but coming coming out of that environment you get a great network a bunch of colleagues that are you know skillful in the in the arena that you are in they go out they get new jobs they grow up to the ranks and eventually you know a lot of people in a lot of good positions have a strong network. I also think it's, you know, it's good both to work for companies that really screw up where you see what not to do. But even more importantly, it's, it's good to work for companies that, uh, that do, that do a really good job of, of certain things. I can definitely tell from people I know th that have worked for very competent startups, what kind of shaping that has, uh, has given on their thought processes. And I, I think a lot of, I, I listened to a bunch of episodes of of, uh, of deal makers where you can hear people have come out of this like in a great way learning from from uh, from world-class talent from simply having a job I don't feel like I've done that and I think I've been very slow about realizing some of the things that other people have have, uh, have learned a lot quicker but I think that's um, yeah that's the advantage of of, uh, of working in bigger companies I totally get what you're saying, you know, having that transition, you know, ha making it as smooth as possible because you have a good idea of what's the path to follow. I think that that's a, that's really valuable. Uh, now, in your case, you know, when it came to that transition, you know, it was it was kind of like a, like a, you first did the consulting and then, you know, right away you got started with the game equation. So what was the uh, sequence of events that needed to happen for you to say, I'm going, I'm going for it? I actually, I think the the main thing was I found someone to partner with. Uh, it was a colleague at that point at my at my job back then, um, and there'd been a bunch of rockiness in the company that I was in that we we just ended up feeling like we could we could go make a, a plunge of it. The other thing that had happened was the the market had started getting a, an affinity for smaller games where the kind of stuff I was building before would take hundred plus person teams you know, years to build. Now people were building games with like small teams in, you know, sub one year release cycles and actually making a good business of it. So these things seemed conducive to be a small startup and we, we took the leap and, and built something. Now, eventually your co-founder left and he went to, uh, to his job. I guess when it comes to co-founder dynamics and alignment, what do you think you got from, from that experience? I think there's a couple of things. So one thing is um, I, I really appreciated working with him, but I didn't know him very well. Um, and he was a very, he was a very private person. Um, and I think one of the things I took away from that is if, if I don't have like a strong mental model of how another human being functions, then I probably shouldn't be in a business with them because at some level it's, it's kind of like being married to them. They have a lot of, uh, of financial and legal involvement in your life. And, um, I think it's it's a fairly good idea to be really close with someone and know them pretty well before uh, before making that kind of commitment to each other. I, I bear him absolutely no ill will. Uh, I, I think he did what was right for him, but the fact that it was even a surprise to me that that happened is uh, is is was an important learning. Was it like a big difference from 
you know, being a co-founder to perhaps now transitioning into being a solo founder on your end? Did, was it like really lonely, the experience there, the transition? It was, but it also forced some really important learning. So I, I ended up sitting and building a game on my own and the tech to build it. This was in the pre-Unity days. And I sat there for a very a very long time building a game. I, I was expecting it to take six months. It ended up taking over two years. But in that, I kind of really grokked why uh, planning and management of time was really important. So eventually, once I... I couldn't figure out, once I sat down and really thought about why my to-do list wasn't getting any shorter and, and started going a bit meta on the problem and, and building some, some actual plans, uh, I very quickly started to appreciate why that is an important part of every company to, to map that stuff out. So whatever happened with the game equation? It, was, uh, it ended up being a one-man shop. I, uh, I released some games under that label. I made some decent money on it. I built some tech. Um, and then I traded that tech up to a stake in a company that uh, was founded by my two leaders, co-founders in what eventually uh, became Cape Copenhagen. So they had, uh, back then, game engines weren't uh, common or free. I had a game engine. They had some, uh, they had a running business. And we had a, a shared goal about wanting to build small games and and getting them in the hands of millions of people. So I, uh, I traded some tech for, for some equity uh, in what was essentially a very small company at that point. And then we grew that into a 45-person company uh, that mainly built games for others over the, the following couple of years. And what did you learn there about scaling? Because, you know, you were used to smaller teams and perhaps running your own shop, and now you have to delegate, you have to scale things up. You know, talk, talk to us about scaling. Yeah, I think... Um, I think there's a bunch of interesting learning. So, so in that, I, I kind of feel like each company gave me some important set of learnings that I took with me. And I think what I learned from from Cape Copenhagen was was uh, was building a company that people actually enjoyed working for. I think I absolutely sucked at, at business at that point. I, I kind of um, I, I managed cash really well. I managed sales really poorly. Uh, in spite of that, we built great product, and because of that, customers kept coming back, and we we ended up growing to a fairly large size. But I think we we could have made that a, a quite successful, profitable business, but we kept sinking our profits into like uh, projects that that were more passion projects than they were actually based on any real commercial thinking. And um, I think I, I think scaling uh, beyond that, it, which has happened in, in FRVR, I think one of the the key things for me to learn was basically the difference between. Strategic thinking, excellence, and execution, excellence. And I think I've been surrounded by a lot of good thinkers in my in in my career, and and I think uh, we really nailed the strategy on on this business. But it took us a very long time to realize that we actually guessed a bunch of things correctly. We just were really poor at executing them. So when we couldn't really find out why we weren't moving the needle over uh, over a longer period of time, it turned out that we'd had the right answers all along. We've just been really poor at uh, at actually uh, executing. So over the last 24 months, we went through like a serious transformation where we really took a hard look at how good we were at things versus how good we thought we were at things and then realized we were bad at a bunch of things like um, uh, like like just executing really meticulously on stuff that was based on metrics. So we, we had some very uh, early wins in the in the business and it made everything look easier than it actually is i think it can be really uh problematic if you if you luck out 
early enough because it makes you think that that the success is easy. It makes you not look close enough about what the actual mechanics of that success is. And it took us a while to get around to that, drill down, really get good at it, and then start shaping the team around the knowledge that we found. And in that, I learned a lot of uh, a lot of other um, principles that I really live by now. One of them is it's it's really important that you that you don't try to hire to solve a problem as much as you hire to scale a solution. I, I have a tendency to hire people to try and solve things that I couldn't really figure out myself. And when you try and do that, it, it's it's a very it's very difficult to get the hiring right. So I would really urge founders to really try hard instead of saying, oh, I'm not a salesman. I can't do sales. I should just hire some master salesperson from another context. You should really try to learn the principles and at least try not sucking at it a little bit before you hire someone to replace you. And then once you do that, you better understand the principles of what it is that you're hiring for. You better understand what you're asking that person to do. And then they can blow you away with their 10 times as long experience and, and how to do it even better. But I really think it's important that you take those first hard steps uh, on your own. Now, in this case, you know, for you, one, one, of the, one of the things that also happened there as a project was a game analytics. Whatever happened with uh, game analytics coming into the picture? Oh, yeah. So, so when I was uh, building the, the stuff in Game Equation, one of the problems I had was that no one had really built a solution, an uh, analytic solution for games. People were talking about it, but usually there were big companies that would build their own data warehousing solutions and like have infinite cash. Um, I built this really simple prototype for um, f- for my own game because I wanted to balance how the progression of levels should be. So I so I built a dashboard. I built a bunch of stuff that basically sent metrics from from the about 100 testers. I had voluntary people playing my game. It would send me metrics, and I had a dashboard that would basically allow me to tune the difficulty of the different levels and find the right uh, progression for them. So in I took that's part of the tech that I traded into um, the, to Cape Copenhagen. And later, we tried to spin that up as a startup on its own. And I think there's an important lesson in that. Uh, I think at some point, people that are hopelessly optimistic around their time needs to figure out that they actually need to focus on fewer things. But I was trying to spin that up as a as like a spun out startup under Cape Copenhagen. Um, we manifested a small team. We started building the product. But at some point, we figured out that this was just not realistic to be doing two two things. So... Um, I can't take credit for how the, the success that became subsequently, but I, I, uh, I registered GameAnalytics.com. I, uh, I talked with uh, with experienced founders and ended up handing the, the the basic idea off to someone else, who then went and executed on it to a point where they actually built it into a, a startup and, and sold it. So um, I'm not uh, I can't take credit for it. I'm not part of the official narrative, but I think it's fun to have been involved uh, in some early level on on. Uh, Absolutely. You know, a company ended up raising millions and then, you know, got acquired. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. 
So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Obviously, you know, right after uh, this, 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 this journey that you were doing, you know, with, with this company, with the previous one, Cape Copenhagen, that was ultimately the immediate step that kind of like led you to your biggest success to date, which is FRVR. So sure. obviously, you know, here you are now a founder that has done it a few times, at least three times, and, and you had been around the block. Why did you think that the problem with, uh, with this company, with FRVR, was meaningful enough to, for you to jump ship and, and make it happen? Things, uh, I think for my entire career, so not, at this point I've been making games for, for more than 20 years, and one of the, the things I've always loved is trying to make things that make it easier to build games or make uh, games more successful. In the beginning, it was a lot about building engines and tooling and things like that because I thought... That was a lot of fun. It's great to solve problems for other people, and it's fun to see them uh, use it. But then eventually, I came to realize that uh, through the work I did in the Game Equation and and, um, and Cape Copenhagen, I came to realize that actually building the game is is table stakes. You have to make a great game, but that's kind of like being able to sing if you want to be a rock star. That's only a tiny percentage of what you actually have to do. The rest of it is really about distribution and getting in front of people. And that was a that's a much harder problem to solve, and I think the market has just gotten worse and worse in terms of of uh, of how difficult that is as the actual means of production have been super commoditized. So in this startup, it was really about trying to solve that problem and thinking of a game company as being a distribution first solution. So we built an entire games platform that basically was all about getting games in front of people first and foremost, and then the authoring piece and actually building them was a was a secondary priority. Now, I guess for the for the people that are listening to to really get it, what ended up being the business model of FRVR? How do you guys make money? So the way we make money is we basically we help uh, game developers make money, and then by by getting the games in the hands of billions of players and then we take a cut of that revenue so we we take a we're sitting in a value chain where we take part of the revenue out between the player and the developer but our aim is to always make the pie bigger to a proportion where the the piece that we're taking out of it is is a is still leaving the developers with a with a bigger slice so the idea is basically that we have a platform that is the last platform you ever need to build for and that means we have all these games built on our standardized platform. And then we go and make relationships with huge partners um, and basically make deals around bringing these games to players via all kinds of alternative paths that aren't just releasing them on the App Store. And this sidesteps a big and increasing problem whereby user acquisition costs for, 
for things on the App Store has gotten to such an expensive place, at least for games, that it's very, very hard to make more money on on users than it than it costs to acquire them. And I think we we have a pretty good solution for that. And how do you go about market timing? Um, yeah, market timing is an interesting one because we actually started this uh, the startup seven years ago, and at that point, it was complete heresy to talk about anything beyond the app stores. And um, at this point, so when we were pitching back then to investors, investors were a little bit uh, looking at us, shaking their heads, and saying, "This is weird. Like you're you're just doing it wrong." And then as time has gone by. The market has moved in the exact direction that we foretold, but we were completely wrong on time, timing. The place where we are now, I think everyone is starting to realize that they've gotten, they made a Faustian bargain with the with the app stores, and they need a different path to market. But at this point, we're, we're where we are now. I expected us to be there after three years, so it's taken a lot of iteration, a lot of scrappiness, um, and a lot of uh, gradual building to get to the point where now we don't suck at execution anymore. Uh, and the market has moved in our direction. So I think we're 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 feeling a, a wind at our backs these days, and that's uh, that. I think that's the feeling of of actually having hit market timing. Now I think in many cases the wrong market timing we had could have killed the company, but um, somehow we made it through. And I think uh, it's definitely given me an appreciation for how important it is that you're you're not too early either. It's not just bad being late. It's 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 also really difficult to be too early to a market. And what about Lisbon, you know, versus, you know, Malta or Copenhagen or any other place? Why Lisbon? Um, so we, we made a, we, we basically made a move to, to Malta. That was for me personally. I wanted to, uh, at that point, FRVR was fully a virtual company. I wanted to live somewhere sunny. That was nice. Um, we've been talking about it for years, me and my, my partner. Uh, so we decided to, to, to make a move and, uh, and the goal was to have it be a place where when I took my fingers off the keyboard, it would feel like we were on vacation. So we moved to Malta. Uh, I lived there for about three years. And I think there's a lot of things around learning how, how uh, what are the prerequisites for actually building up a company. We were trying to build a team there for, for all three years. I don't think I ever managed to get more than eight people on my team there, even though we were hiring for the full three years. And people were leaving as quickly as we could hire them, not due to the company, but fundamentally because a lot of people um, move away from Malta after a couple of years. So, so um, we uh, we decided we needed we we got a lot of success at one point, and we needed to be able to build up a team to to a greater degree. So we were looking at opening up a location for the company. Um, so we were doing desk research on on many different uh, places in Europe, basically all the big tech hubs and all the capitals. And we had only managed to actually do on-the-ground research for uh, for Lisbon because it looked like one of the more promising candidates. And then COVID hit, and everything got locked down, and we were basically trapped on uh, in Malta. They completely shut down. You couldn't sail or fly in or out for for a fairly long time. So in the end, we were so bottlenecked by the lack of ability to to execute with no team that we just had to make a, a leap of faith. So I think it's it's fairly important sometimes to be able to make hard decisions based on incomplete information. And this is definitely one of those cases. So we ended up taking uh, two of, uh, of our people that were in Malta, which was a pretty big uh, remaining part of the team, and, uh, and our families, and then moving to Lisbon during COVID. And we were basically on the first flight off the island. We were in an airport that was completely shut down. The power wasn't even running. Um, and we didn't really know whether we were going to take off until we were in the air. And then we land here in Lisbon, I think past midnight. We had some 
some people on the ground here already. And we were, you know, everyone wearing masks and gloves and shuffled into buses. And then we sort of just landed here with our families. Uh, we had no place to live. So we were just hanging out in Airbnbs. And then we just kind of had to spin it up to, to begin with. But now we're, I've been here for three and a half years. I really love the city. It's got something really nice going for it. It's great quality of life. It's a good talent pool. Um, and, and I actually, I really enjoy living here. The, the idea was to build up a company uh, on the spot. And we actually hired a whole bunch of people in, in Lisbon. But, um, but after coming out of COVID, things never really went back to normal with regards to people coming into the office. So we kind of had to make a decision on whether we wanted to go fully remote or whether we wanted to force people to come into the office. And uh, we felt like it was a, it was a hard decision, but ultimately I decided that it was better for us to, to go fully remote because I think this, this is the way the world is moving. I definitely think it'll go back and forth in waves, but getting good at this, I think, is something that gives you a competitive advantage. So we've, we've been trying to do that ever since. So as you're talking about people here, talk to us about strategy excellence versus execution excellence. Yeah, so I think, I think as, I, as I mentioned earlier, I think we had the right ideas really early on. I, I think we just got, uh, we got a bit lucky with a, a bunch of the early stuff that we did without really understanding why it, it succeeded. So it took us a very long time to come back to actually assessing whether the initial ideas that we tried and failed with weren't actually good to begin with, but it was just the way that we were doing them that was wrong. So once we did that and went back and really insisted on going deep on every single detail and really looking, and, and these are things like how do you measure your, you know, the efficacy of your, your game updates? Um, you know, being good at data is difficult. Being good at evaluating whether what you did was right or not is, is important. Making sure that you get that whole end-to-end -end pipeline of, of inventing something, building it, releasing it, and then evaluating it to get that right. We had that already, but it was just very full of different flaws and misunderstandings and really getting close to that and really tightening the screws on that entire process. Once we got that right, it really made the numbers start moving. And it allowed us to, um, the, the way we did it was basically we insisted on the fact that we had to get profitable user acquisition to work because that wasn't a thing that we had been able to get to work. Every time we spent a dollar on user acquisition, we'd get 30 cents back. And we ended up saying, okay, this has to work. And then we went really deep on it. And it very quickly went from spending a dollar and making 30 cents to spending a dollar and getting a dollar back, but at like 10K a month. And then we basically kept being able to tweak it and scale it until we were, you know, making, spending hundreds of thousands of, uh, a month profitably and, and beyond. Um, and really, really insisting on that having to work made us see many details that we'd just glossed over previously where, where, where we thought we were doing it. But in fact, when we looked closely at it, we weren't doing anything that worked. Um, I think that's that, that has really given me an appreciation for you can have all the best ideas in the world. But I think if you have to choose between strategic excellence and execution excellence, I think execution excellence will win pretty much 10 out of 10 times. Uh, of course, if you have both, it'll, it'll get to be really special. But um, I, I wasn't. I wasn't cognizant of how important that was previously. And what about to fundraising? How much uh, capital have you guys raised to date? So I think we've raised about $79 million so far with a mix of, uh, of, of debt funding and, uh, and equity funding over, um, over two rounds um, so far. And we're fundraising right now for, for a third round. 
And how do you go about, you know, the capital raise, you know, especially the experience of being there in Europe? I mean, how has it been the, the experience of going through the different rounds, the different blends, you know, two of equity versus debt? You know, how, how has it been for you? I think it, it's um, it's given me an appreciation for in person because the first round we were able to see people in person and we were, I mean, our our strategy is a fairly comprehensive rewrite of the mechanics of of, uh, of of the games industry, and that makes the strategy hard to boil down into a thirty second pitch. So we were terrible at that in the beginning. So we would we would need like at least an hour of a meeting to get someone to understand what was we actually done. But usually when it then clicked, they were like, okay, that's pretty clever, and and they'd be interested in it. We somehow managed to raise our seed round without having a deck, and by talking to people relentlessly for like an hour plus until they, they understood what we were seeing. Um, later, we, we, um, we basically had to raise the A round during COVID. And we actually, we tried to raise an A round to begin with uh, that we ended up walking away from because uh, our core business was taking off to a degree where we didn't actually need to raise. So we decided to revisit it, but um, it, it made it, really clear to me that one is it's very it's very useful to be able to meet people in person i actually think that the that the round that we ended up uh dropping would have gone through if we'd just been able to meet people but i think getting remotely you had to get way better at being super sharp in your communications and pitching and so on so so we spent a lot of time boiling uh our business down into you know 10 slides as everyone does, I just think it was an exceptionally difficult thing for us to do. It took us several years to get to that point. Um, and and I think COVID has just generally changed the dynamics of fundraising in a way where people don't take physical meetings. On, they have a fairly high bar for people to meet in person. And I do think it's a very difficult environment to 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 fundraise over video calls. I, I think people underappreciate how big of a difference that is, actually. Oh, yeah. Now, when it comes to um, obviously fundraising and people like we have been discussing, vision is a big one. So if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of FRVR is fully realized, what does that world look like? I think the um, the ability to be a successful game uh, developer would probably be, uh, you know, right now, I think the, the hit rate is very low. If you want to go into games, it's kind of at this point, I think it's kind of like wanting to be a, a you're like a star of some kind you you the, the success rate is frighteningly low there are a lot of people making games there's a, an abundance of content and there's a, a dearth of discovery and that means that only the people who are amazing at monetizing so that they can pay for marketing which is a bidding war are the ones that that basically get most of the eyeballs part of what we want to solve is fixing that basically we want people to end up with the games that are right for them not the games that could pay the most to advertise to them. And in, this, in, this, in, a, in a world where we've been really successful, relatively small teams or individuals would be able to build games on you know, passion economy time um, that would actually end up being something that they can make a living of. We have developers that are, that are living in a, a very unusual lives that are basically just living off royalties on our platform, which I, is to to my great satisfaction. I'd love to see that at enormous scale, where you know, where where people build something that is meaningful, and we connect the right people to that content that that really would enjoy it, and then everyone wins. So let's talk about now the past with a lens of reflection. Let's say I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. 
to perhaps that moment where you were thinking about starting something of your own, you know, and that was, for example, you know, the game equation, you know, say I'm able to bring you back to that 2006, right before, you know, in August, where you were going to be making this official. And let's say you were able to have a sit down with that younger Brian, and you're able to tell that younger Brian one piece of advice for launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Oh, I really want to cram two pieces of advice into this one piece of advice. So I think one of the, the absolute first one is do the math early on. Cause I, I felt like I, I actually did the probability math and uh, on the thing that I've been trying to build for several years in, in Cape Copenhagen. And, and I realized that it was completely unrealistic. So my, my dream was to build a, a company that could build games that would be successful enough that we could keep funding the next game. But everything around how we went to market, once I actually sat down and figured out the unit economics and how that was supposed to work out, I could tell that unless we could consistently hit the top 0.1% sales numbers with our games, it was a complete pipe dream. That math I could have done at any time, and I could have saved myself myself a lot of naive years. Um, And I think the the second part of that is basically just think of the, like, be, be honest and think about the business first. And the utility to other people before trying to spend your intellect uh, basically rationalizing, you know, things that you're doing because you think they're fun. Um, I think I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive, but I really think I was slow at at separating those things out and actually started thinking outside in at what I was doing and how it was supposed to work and how how it was supposed to be planned out. And I I think. I'm I, I'm still not great at this, but I'm getting better at it, and it certainly saves me a lot of time that I can sit down and do that that spreadsheet instead of going and building something for three years and then figuring out that it doesn't work. Very profound. So, Brian, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Um, I usually answer LinkedIn messages within uh, not not too long time, but otherwise they're welcome to 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 basically shoot me an email on Brian at frvr.com. Or, um, yeah, I think that's probably the, the best method. Amazing. Well, hey, Brian, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. It's been a pleasure being here. Thanks a lot. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.